Everybody doing okay? Hey, we're about to start the book of John. Yeah, one of you. Excited. Um, My wife and I have this reoccurring conversation that happens from time to time. We will be in conversation, and and because um, we have moved into a new place, uh, we don't remember all of your names. Listen, we could lie to you, all right, but we just don't. It's hard. There's like one of us and more than one of you. So it's a problem that everybody we meet, we've got to be like, wait a minute, who is that person again? What is, I know them, but I may not know their name. And so, have you ever, um, with a colleague or with your spouse, been in this conversation where you come in and you're trying to determine if you're talking about the same person? And my wife will use this phrase that's incredibly, she's in nursery, she's not even hearing this, it's fine. She will use this phrase that I've never found helps the conversation. You know that person. If I knew that person that you're talking about, we would not be having this fight. Right? Oh, no, 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 you know that person. And you will go on to describe them and um, use every possible terms. You will begin to describe their hair color. And you're, you're not a racist, but you may describe their pigment. Okay, and you will go on to talk about, you know, if they have a um, a distinctive um, personality trait or characteristic that stands out, you will you will say, oh, you know, the person that does that one thing. And, you, you know, you know, that person and I know. Right. And you you might even go on and say, oh, they work at this thing. You'll start to describe what they do to try to get at, you know, they work at this spot with so-and-so. Um, this happens to all of us parents, and I'm just now entering into this. Um, someone approached me um, this week and said, you're the husband of Whitney. It's like, it's going to be on my tombstone, Colby, husband of Whitney, right? And, and when you have kids, what happens? You lose your own identity. You become the parent of your kid that plays soccer. Right? And you go on and on and on. You're the person that works this place. I I tell that story to you because the fight and what John wrote this book about was that you would know the real Jesus. And there's lots of people in our culture that will give a perspective about who they think or believe or hypothesize that Jesus is. But what we get in John is a different perspective. We get a perspective of someone who leaned their head against the breast of Jesus. And I don't know you, but I would guess there's not many homies that you have, friends that you have, that got that kind of access to you. Like, I know Ronnie Foster's got tons of friends. But I just don't see a lot of people lounging on the couch next to Ronnie Foster, bro-hugging and leaning their head on his chest. Right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? We get an insider's perspective of God made man. And, And the trick about this book of what he's coming at you with is that you might believe. 
chapter 20, verse 31 says, I have written these things that you might believe. He's got a goal here for you. And this word believe in the Greek appears 98 times. It is the central idea and word and thrust of the book. He doesn't want you merely coming to Jesus with information that leaves you unchanged. He's coming that you might believe. And so my heart and our heart as elders going through this book is that we might be a church that believes bigger things about Jesus than what we currently believe. That you may have walked with Jesus for 30 years, but can I say that you getting in God's Word has the occasion for you to deepen in your belief of Him. In Him. Through Him. The truth is, is that some of you in here do not believe in Jesus. You do not know Him as John knows Him. And before the end of this book, our prayer is that you would believe. And you'd find life in His name. That's what we're, we're praying, that before we have a couple house churches, we're going to be baptizing people who do not believe but now believe because of what God's Word is going to do. I can argue this alongside of John, that the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. The most important thing about you is what you believe and what you do with this preacher from Nazareth. Because it changes everything. Amen, Christians? Let me also talk about um, the dark side of the force and why, what other people do here with this. Why it's important that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and that all things were made through Him and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we have friends that are Mormon. And our Mormon friends believe in many gods. They believe that a human body God who lives on another planet populated this planet as a God. And that when you die, you are going to stay married, which sounds more like uh, hell than heaven for some of you. Um, um, Hey, just being honest here for a minute, we've all had them days. Right? Right? but that you are going to populate a planet and yourself become a god. Okay? This is a 19 or sorry 1830 Joseph Smith position about Jesus is that he is the brother of Satan and that he is a created being. So either A, you could take he was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him that he is not a created thing, but he is the eternal God creating all things and the instrument through creation. Or you can believe Joseph Smith that he's a created being on par with Satan. Do you see why this John is critical? So, will they use the name of Jesus? Absolutely. But I know more than one person in this room named Dennis. And more and more person named Ronnie. And they are not the same people. Right? even though they all attend the same things and make it super confusing. Let's go on to Jehovah's Witness, who will use the exact same name of Jesus, but they will deny that Jesus was actually God. Even though we will come into verse 18 and it will say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who are they talking about? Jesus, 
who is the only God at the Father's side, has made Him known. So they would deny that that is true. So a Jehovah's Witness will roll up knocking on your door, hoping you become 144,000, and they will argue that there is no Trinity, that God is not triune, He is one, without triune composition, and that Jesus is merely Michael the Archangel. Now this view comes from the 1870s, so it's a little bit newer. So why is this critical? Because they're going to knock on your door, they're going to set up stands, and they're going to hand out booklets called the Watchtower. Where are you going to come at from the Scriptures to defend both the humanity and divinity of Jesus? Let's go into a little bit bigger group called Muslims. Muhammad believes in a one God, but he does not believe in Trinity. He does not believe that Jesus died on the cross that he merely swooned, that he was on the cross, he did not die. So if Jesus didn't die, your sins are not paid for, they're not forgiven, and that you must work your way to heaven because there is no payment of your penalty on the cross, right? And that um, Jesus was merely a prophet. Now the problem with this is, is that you're usually supposed to listen to what prophets say. But Jesus as a prophet is a prophet that you don't listen to when he says, I am son of God. All right, that comes from the 800s, so it's a little bit older. Or we can get a little bit closer to home with New Age, right? All of our hippie friends in Durango, and everything is a God. That's why you can hug trees and worship dirt, right? And that um, we just, basically man is innately good, and all you need to do is smoke pot and do some meditation. Jesus was a fully enlightened you know, yoga practitioner, and then if he was here today, he would just, you know, not judge anybody, which basically means you can do whatever you wanted to and sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. So here's where I'm saying this is critical. And, and, and everybody is going to come at you with a view of who Jesus is. University professors, amen? Um, crazy uncles, right? Everybody got that crazy uncle. And if you don't, you are the crazy uncle. Uh, cult leaders. Listen, we're on the west side of the Continental Divide. Act like you can't get in a cult tomorrow. Politicians. Oh, that got quieter. Um, you think politicians ain't milking the Jesus word? Do you think that every time that a politician mentions the name of Jesus, they're talking about the biblical view of Jesus, the person of Jesus? We need to be biblically informed because a lot of people are using His name and they ain't talking about Him. They're talking about something or someone other than our Lord Jesus. They're using the name, but they're talking about somebody else. So here's the argument. I want, I want to go at John because who does the most ancient, reliable, historical document say that He is? This, this book, for that reason, has an apologetic that's a defense of the faith or a polemic tone to it. It wants to tell you who he really is. John is giving you the insider television series on Jesus. John is going to unveil the private life of the Godhead as one who is leaned on his breast. This kind of access is real. So you're saying, well... Uh, what about John's bias here? You know, he's one of his friends. 
He comes from someone who walked with Him. Sure, but what about His bias? I want you to um, maybe say that while that's true, there may be a bias here. Do you realize that John, who wrote this letter, most likely from Ephesus, left his comfortable Jewish culture where people practiced his lifestyle, went to the pagan city of Ephesus. By the way, he ended up being uh, buried there. I've actually been to his grave. Where they worshipped false gods and shrines and even tried to kill Paul while he preached against them. It's not like a vacation spot for John. He steps out of his own culture as a missionary to take the gospel and pastor the church at Ephesus. Second thing, do you realize that church history will tell us that John was the only disciple who died a natural death, which is actually prophesied in this book? Now, he died a natural death, sure, but do you realize that he was also boiled alive at some point and lived? Right? Like, I don't know what kind of traumatic background stuff you're bringing in here today. I don't. I doubt very few of you were put in hot oil and boiled alive for Jesus. Where if he would have just recanted what he believes and heard and saw in Jesus here, his skin doesn't get burned. And he said, give me the boiling oil. So I think that if he made it up, he had the opportunity to throw up the deuces and get out of this Jesus thing much earlier before that. He survives that, and they put him on a lonely island of Patmos where he will go on to write the book of Revelation. Okay? And so here's my deal. Many of us would at that point want to be, you know, we make decisions to be around our grandkids or around amazing mountains, or we want at the end of our life to be able to have a little bit of freedom um, to do what we want to do at the end of our life, and he is a prisoner for Christ on an island And even there, he's being used by God. That's his retirement. So, I I would just argue that while all these other people want to throw out theories and ideas about who Jesus is, John the Beloved, who is different from John the Baptist, John the Beloved, who wrote this book, signs it with his own blood, sweat, and tears. And I just don't think the university professors that I've interacted with are willing to do that on their perspective of Jesus. So I think there's a heaviness to this book. There's an importance to this book. And and we can't go lightly. So let's pray and ask the God who inspired this through John um, to inspire it all over again in us. If you want to, just bow all over um, the house this morning. Maybe this would be a good time um, for you to ask God to push the reset button on your heart and all the movies and articles and the cultural ideas that you brought in this room about Jesus that are not from the Scriptures. Maybe um, today... You've got your, thing, your eyes on things below and Jesus wants to raise your eyes to things above. And so you would ask God just to show you um, a mysterious, big, all-encompassing vision 
of the Prince of Heaven, Jesus. Maybe you'd even begin now praying for those that you know who maybe throw around Jesus' name but they don't know Him. Those that are in your life who need to see the eternal Word of God made flesh and find life in His name. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter Your courts with thanksgiving and Your presence with praise. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Him more than we've ever needed Him. God, I am too small to preach this book. God, we are a people too hard-hearted to hear this truth in this book. And so, Holy Spirit, if You do not come and exalt the only begotten Word of God in our hearts and minds, not one of us is going to walk out of here changed. Father, come and pastor us. Good Shepherd, come and lead us to steal waters. Plant us in a fertile place that we might bear much fruit. God, we want to dig our lives into these verses and draw life from the Jesus we find there. God, we're utterly helpless here. And so God, um, tame um, our wild passions for sin and stir us for affection and desire for truth, for Your person, for Your Word, for our joy's sake, for Your glory's sake, and for the good of the nations. Father, as we walk through this book, may we who know You deepen in belief, be astounded at the knowledge and truth that we find. And for those friends of ours in this room and friends outside this room in our house churches that come and are orbiting around Your Word, God, we pray that those who currently do not believe would believe. Simply because of the excellency of Your Word and the truth and the living water found there. And so cause all of us to drink, God. We're thirsty for You. And we pray this would be about You today. And we ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said. Amen. Alright, here's the deal. I'm, you're already scared because you heard Ronnie read chapter 1. You realized it was 8,000 verses long. And you're like, we ain't getting out of here until Wednesday. Alright? My goal is Sunday after Sunday, I'm going to come in and take a chunk of this or the whole chapter and just go at it the best that I can. Sometimes I'm not going to be able to address the whole chapter and I lean on the house church leaders to go verse by verse and give treatment to those passages that I do not have time to address. So here's my deal. You are not going to get the fullness of this if you are not in a house church. Okay? So we ask you to find one of those be walking through the Word, be studying the Word with other believers, be praying the Word with other believers. There's transformation that happens when you're in community with other believers 
going deep into the word and being serious about it. Amen? So, for that reason, it'll be super important for you to come into here on Sundays, have an open heart, which I hope is every Sunday, have an open Bible, and have an open notebook. Okay? So feel free to take notes, and the house church will be a place for you to interact with those things. All right, that's my plug. Let's keep going. He starts here in saying, in the beginning, we could have done this on Christmas because this is John's birth narrative of Jesus. And it's saying, Jesus did not begin in a stable in Bethlehem before molecules existed. Jesus simply was. He entered into human history as a man in Bethlehem, but He is the pre-existent, eternal God. He was the Word. He was with God. He was God. Okay? You have friends who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. You bring them to the book of John and you walk them verse by verse here. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, not anything was made that was made. He is the Rosetta Stone of Heaven who we need to decipher the language of heaven. He's the key to all of this. He is the unapproachable God made touchable. This is the witness of Him who walked with Jesus. There is one God in triune nature that the Son is always deferring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always deferring to the Father. The Father is always deferring to the Son. They are in one God with three distinct persons. Now, um, this is important because we do not have three gods. That is polytheism. Right? And we do not merely have the monotheism where God's character and His nature is not revealed. So what we see within God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, this is incredibly mysterious. There are aspects of this that are beyond us, but there, there's a revelation of this in Scripture that you're absolutely to understand and know. That God wants you to know. God wants you to get. And so I don't think that this is how I've taught it, and I, I know there's lots of illustrations out there for the Trinity, and uh, lots of them are bad. Um, like God is like water, right? He is steam, and He is ice. And then He's liquid. And I know some of you have used those, all right? Wrong. That's a mode. That's, that's, it's all H2O in different modes. Some have said God is like an egg. He's the shell. He's the yolk. And He's one other thing that I don't know this illustration well enough to talk about. Right? But that's actually three distinct parts of an egg. I, I've come to the... You know, even um, St. Patrick, um, when he tried to articulate um, the gospel to Ireland, which, by the way, St. Patrick's an incredible missionary you should study about on St. Patrick's Day, um, along with wearing green or whatever you do, who's a fantastic missionary to Ireland in the Middle Ages, he took the shamrock and he said, look, it's got three, but it's one. There you go, Irish people, right? And ever since then, they caught on. I still don't like that. I think that the best illustration that God has given us for His person and His nature being both triune and one 
is the thing that He made in His own image. Where He says that we are body, soul, and spirit, and that we are a temple that interacts with the triune God. We are one. He is one. But uh, the interesting thing about us is that's different than Him. He's in harmony with Himself. Out of the overflow and the dance, C.S. Lewis would say, of God internally loving Himself, He flows out creation. You are not necessarily like that. The reason why I know that is, all of us have been at a place, come on now, your body is saying one thing, your mind tells you another, right? And then deep in your heart and soul, you actually want to do a third thing, right? On your best days, you got two out of the three working together, right? Sin has come into us in such a way that we're fragmented. We don't work in harmony together. We don't work together. But I think the best illustration of how God is one person, um, one nature, with three essences, is that He is created inside of man, this very similar triune nature to interact with Him. It says that He is with God. This expression should not read merely as connotating the Word was with the presence of God, but rather that it existed in a kind of interactive reciprocity between the Word and God. And out of that reciprocity, out of that interaction, creation flows. Jesus is worked through as the instrument. He is not subordinate to the Father, but coordinate. He's working together like the heart and the hand in perfect harmony. If you want a beautiful um, picture of this from the epistles, go to Colossians chapter 1 and hone in on verse 16. So here's what I get from this so far. There is interpersonal communication and relationship inside the person of God. Right? Anybody there yet? This is a nosebleed picture of beautiful theology. And some of you, our blue-collar brothers and sisters in Christ, want to say, man, I just want to love God, love people. Right? Why we got to be talking about Trinity? Well, one thing is, love which God? The God of Mormons? The God of Islam? Or the God that Jesus put on display? See, this, this is incredibly important. And he gives us right up front what I would call a spoiler alert. Right? He could have like put this at the end of the book and said, alright, well, here's what I got for you. Jesus is the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. End of the book. Instead, he puts it up front and spills the beans and says, here's what's coming at you hot. God, the Word, is going to walk around and He's going to jam up some Pharisees. He is going to restore a Samaritan woman like no other man has ever restored her. He's going to heal a blind man by spitting on mud and rubbing it on his face. As easy as it is for him to look at a dead man, Lazarus, and tell him to rise from the grave, is it for God to look at your dead heart and say, come alive. He's right up front telling you what you're dealing with when you're dealing with this Jesus. It is a vantage point that many of us don't deal with when we think about Jesus. And this is where I get into 
our views of Jesus and the nature and the person of God are too low. They're too uninformed. See, he wants to inform with knowledge who God is so that we might have worship and joy and pleasure in God. Um, This is the difference of you walking outside right now or going to your house and looking up at the mountains, which everybody cares about. Because like, basically, if you can see the ones with white stuff on them, your property cost is more expensive, right? So there's a difference between looking from the bottom up versus sometimes the Bible is going to unapologetically look from the top down. It's going to go up to the cliff at Saul's Creek and have a perspective of the town that you don't have. So what John is giving us here is a vantage point. And he's, he's going to say that there's intimacy and withness and interaction within the Godhead that is mind-blowing. But it's not completely foreign. I heard one author say, multiply your deepest intimacy by a billion and you're still not even close to the love within the Godhead. No mother has ever loved her newborn child. No husband has ever loved his bride. No friend has ever loved their companion. No person has even ever loved their own soul as much as the Father has eternally and infinitely loved the only begotten Son of God. He rightly holds himself as ultimate because anything else would be idolatry. And they are not just delighting in one another we see here, but it says that they are creating, that all things were created through him. They delight in harmony and create in harmony. This is very drastically different, and I could go over all the major world religions, how they believe that the world was created out of conflict. Do you realize that Christianity is exclusive in the fact that it believes that the world was actually created good? And that sin and death and curse and destruction is a temporary invader. And it's got its day. That it wasn't created in conflict of two gods at war with each other, but it was actually a God in harmony with himself, creating the earth good, and that sin is something, that's one of our introductions as man. And I, I love that out of harmony and out of love for one another, they are creating, and not just that they create, but they want to invite creation into the enjoyment of God that they have with themselves. Here's why I know that that's how we're wired. Um, We always invite people into things that we love, right? And uh, I've used this illustration before. You may remember it. Um, One of my pet peeves is people sharing with me music off of their cellular device. Um, Here's why this is one of my pet peeves. There is nothing that makes me dislike a song the first time I hear it like a low-grade performance by your Samsung. Right? Clifford Cox. (laughs) Clifford will always do this to me. He will come in, I will be in a conversation, and he will stick his phone in the midst of my life 
and say, dude, you got to hear this song. I'm thinking theme song, right? We just got to go through Ezekiel. Is that cool? Ezekiel, listen to this song, plays it. I can't even hear it. It's muffled, right? But people, back in the day, back before we had real songs on our phone, it was ringtones. Some of you people still have ringtones. That's a whole other sermon illustration. Okay? But what people do is they hear a song that they love and they're trying to let you hear it, right? God forbid two people try to do this at once. It becomes name that tune in competition. Why can't you just wait to share the song when you have a quality version of it to present to me? No idea, Cliff. But here's the deal. Sometimes the things that we love, we can't wait to share. There's a lack of hesitancy. There's an aggressiveness. There's, there's a truth to that. That's why evangelism is the most natural thing that people do. You share what you love. God is no different. He has invited you to share in the joy that He has in the Son, the Son has in the Spirit, and the Spirit has in the Father. Do you see it? You are inviting into this holy circle of joy into what God loves most. Himself. Now, this word here in the beginning was the word. This word is logos. Everybody say logos. Gotta do that because you're getting real quiet on me. There it is. Good thing we got the kids in here. They're coming in clutch. So with logos, this is a Greek word, and it it's the word for word. Now think about this. When you communicate, you use words, and if I say the word tree. You have in your mind and in your soul a picture of a word tree. So the way we communicate with words is actually we communicate with ideas. The idea of a tree. Because I may be thinking of a pine, you may be thinking of a spruce. So we use words to connect and link with other people. The Logos, um, we, there's kind of two ideas for theologians about what John means here. And I want to make a position on this. Does the use of this come from Hebraic soil? Namely, that when he says the Word of God, the Logos of God, is he talking about the Word of God came to Isaiah, and Isaiah, y'all know what I'm talking about. Left side of the book. The Word of God came to Moses. Moses, go to my people. Right? When, when John's referencing, in the beginning was the Word, is he talking about the hundreds of times that the word, word of God, is used in the left side of the book? Is he referencing that? You hear what I'm saying? Now, for some of you, this should open your mind to the fact that Jesus is in the Old Testament. Jesus is clearly, unequivocally, in the Old Testament as the word of God, besides other Christophanies. Or, so that's one position, that he's kind of leaning that way. That the Word of God that, that came to Moses, that came to the people, that authored the Scripture of the Old Testament, that's what he's talking about. Or, there's a Greek idea here. The Greeks, particularly two camps, argued, they looked at creation, and were so much more honest than many of our scientists today, and they said there is logos, which is where we get the idea of logic. Logic and logos come from the same root. And they said there is logic in how the eyeball works. There is logic between the seasons. There is reason. There is harmony. 
There's order. There is structure. And they would say that there is a logos, a, a divine or an overarching ultimate principle that guides the universe. And by the way, not sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They're just men with reason looking at the created order and saying, all right, here's one thing we know. There is, there is logic and reason to how all of this operates. Now, they divided into two camps. Uh, the Stoics, this is a generalization, it's a gross generalization, but basically stay with me. There was the Stoics who basically said, we've got to figure out this principle and align our lives to it. And the Epicureans, who Paul would interact with in the book of Acts, for you Bible scholars in here know what I'm talking about. He came to Epicureans, they were people, it's like, forget the principle, the most important thing is pleasure. Right? Go to snow down, right? Have a good time, you know, party, live it up. That's your Epicurean camp, in light of the Logos, the Stoics respond with morality. And they would basically say, people find their meaning either in pleasure or submission to virtue in light of this Logos. So, here's the question. What is John doing? Is he meaning the Hebraic root of this word Logos? Or does he mean the cultural, pop culture understanding of how the world sees it? I think it's clear he's being ambiguous on purpose because he wants to say both. And he's going to argue both. He's going to be intentionally ambiguous. And I want to err on the side of Scripture and say how much of the acts of God are done through the Word of God. Now, you, But I think it's clear that he is hijacking a shadow of something from pop culture and revealing its ultimate meaning. Thus, I believe it is both. That Jesus is the Logos. So here's, the, here's where the Greeks, I think, got it wrong and where John is correcting them. There was not a universal principle ordering the universe. There was a person. There wasn't a universal principle ordering the universe. There was a person. There was a, ver a word made flesh. And he's inviting us into that story. He's inviting us into relationship with that person. So here's the question. You don't have to be a Christian, but you have to deal with this. What do you do with the unexpected harmony of the universe? Even with sin rippling it, what do you do with the unexpected order and logic that our universe has? Because here's the joke of modern atheism. Atheists do not believe that there is reason behind it. They would say that nothing created everything, produce everything, and will go to nothing. Despite there is no evidence that nothing produced everything. And not even that, we disproved hundreds of years ago that spontaneous generation does not happen. That life has to produce life. And I don't find, um, just as a side note here, that atheist use of nothing creating everything I don't know what they do with the fact that there's independent, irreducible complexity. And I know some of you never use this word, but for four of you in here that care about science, there is such independent complexity 
that is irreducible in the composition of your eyeball that it is a mathematical impossibility that you today have sight. And yet, here you are, barely seeing me. What do you do? They, these scientists, they have to strain to look past the evidence draped all over our universe. We merely get to look at the universe and enjoy the Logos who created all things with the logic of His presence. Um, I, I want to say this a bit because we've got lots of kids in here. There are Christian doctors and scientists in every field, often persecuted in America, for holding down the biblical worldview that I believe, in fact, and they will say that it has the most explanatory power for geology, for biology, for physics, for quantum physics. And there are scientists and doctors who are holding it down, saying that the biblical worldview has the most explanatory power for our universe that we find ourselves in. And I, I just thank God for those people. Okay? Parents, I, let me get on you for a minute. If you are not raising your kids who have that kind of potential to enter into fight the good fight in academia, like if you're not preparing them to enter into the marketplace of the world and opposing worldviews, to fight the good fight as scientists and doctors on that front, it ain't going to be everybody, all right? You've hung out with people in this church. It ain't going to be everybody in our church. But there are people and young people in our church that are geared that way who God wants them to engage with Him with all of their mind. And they are going to preach the Jesus of the Scriptures in scientific fields and if, you, if we as a church don't raise our young people up to hold the fort down on those fronts and advance the kingdom there, um, the church will for the next 40 years not have witnesses who push back darkness in academia. One of my biggest pet peeves as someone who worked at, taught at a university, worked with college students, is that we had to raise up more and more college students who became professors because those professors made their classes oftentimes into a cult. We need Christians un, unfazed by criticism who do fantastic scientific work and love Jesus passionately at the same time. Sorry, that's me meddling as a pastor. Everybody okay? Good? Jesus is the first cause of all causes. If you do not have God behind the origin of the universe, then what do you have? The argument of John in these first verses, the original and ultimate authority and reality is a person. He is the logos, the logic of all creation. He is the reason behind everything. The structure, the intelligence we find locked into every pocket of the created order of the universe. The universe preaches and praises His great fame and His great personality. The reason that this gets down on the nut, uh, on the bottom level with us, is that you can't live without meaning. Amen. Amen. I've I've argued and fought with and pleaded with students who found their meaning 
in other places, adults who found their meaning in other places, and it was a, it was a slow suicide. You've got to have meaning. And the argument here is that it has logic and it has meaning because it has Jesus as its center. Jesus is the meaning you were created for. He's the reason of your being. Anything else will be jacked up. Okay, here's, the, here's where I get into this. We moved here, and uh, it's weird that me and my wife, we try to do equality things. I change diapers, all right? Just putting it out there. I do other dishes, other things that maybe 100 years ago they were non-masculine things. But you know what? When it comes to assembling furniture, there's only one gender at work in our house, Okay? And it's a uniquely male operation. Even though I'm not sure that males have proven to be the most equipped to do this. Right? We're not fans of what these people call instructions. So I don't need instructions. It's a table. Yeah, but it was built in Sweden. Right? By the way, Ikea is just Legos for adults. Okay? And so you buy cheap Ikea furniture and you begin to assemble it. And you have to go to the instructions. Right? Why? Because somewhere in the universe, a Swedish person made this, all right? And they don't think like Americans, right? And you need to look at that instruction, and it tells you all kinds of useful things. Don't put bags over your kid's head. Bags were never meant for kids' heads. I learned that from instructions, right? Don't eat the parts. Also important, from instructions, we sort of, as a culture, we're not super great at instructions. That things were built for a purpose and meant to be used for a purpose. Um, I come to the conclusion that a vast majority of my parenting is trying to teach my kids to use things for the purpose by which they were created for. Right? You assemble a coffee table, it's a surfboard. Right? Get off the coffee table. It's not a surfboard. You say all kinds of things as parents you never thought you would say as a human, right? My kids are constantly, like, I have a second child who's not as big as my oldest child. Everything's a weapon if you're a second child and small, right? I've had to take bats, right, that were meant for baseballs being used on heads, right? It, like, brooms can become weapons. Anything's a weapon if you're a second child, what is he doing? He's taking something that was created to sweep, and he's trying to sweep his brother's life up. Um, one of the great illustrations of this, I think, uh, we had house church, uh, read through some of John. We were trying to make it through the whole thing. It was a marathon. All right? And we were gathered together. We have the kids together with us as we read through the book. And I was like, where's my, where's my, my oldest, my most responsible child, my, my favorite? Right? Where is he? Okay. Come to find out, he comes up and we're praying and his hands are already in prayer mode. And I was like, well, that's pious. So great. Look at him. He's ready. So apparently, at some point, he'd went down to one of our mouse traps in our garage. It was one of those putty ones. Oh, look, Play-Doh. Not Play-Doh. <laughs> Glued his hands together. 
Which, if you're at a prayer meeting and you've got to have your glue, hands glued together, you know, here or here, all right? <laughs> oh, his mom was super happy about it. <laughs> got to go in there. We use all kinds of chemicals to disattach it, right? Disattach him from him, right? And what happened there? Something was created to capture mice, but it was used for entertainment, right? Homeschool kids, hashtag, right? So, so we, we had to set him down and say, okay, just for future reference, mouse traps are not toys. And like, just on the same path of logic, don't use the snow blower to clip your fingernails. Right? And just four or five other, like, just don't touch things. Right? L listen, we can joke about how we um, like to use things or that we could joke about how training kids is a big experiment and teaching them to use things for the purpose by which they were created. But the foolishness of our society is that no matter biologically what your DNA says that you are male or female, that you somehow can choose to have surgery and mutilate your body to be whatever gender you want to be. Mousetrap. Right? We're, we're coming in saying, doesn't matter what the Ikea instructor, doesn't matter what the Swedish guy says, it's not a coffee table, it's a surfboard, Take it up to purgatory. We'll snowboard on it. It worked fine. Can't possibly go wrong. Clip your fingernails on your snowblower. See how it goes. Right? I mean, this is going to say that there is a created order to things that man in his sin and rebellion boldly ignores to his own detriment. I'm going to use my sexuality in ways it was never created for. Doesn't matter if there's disease that comes from that. Doesn't matter if there's brokenness that comes from that. I don't expect to get hurt. I'm going to call the shots on things. I am the God who orders the universe. Not God. I'm the God. Or I'm going to treat my business partners shrewdly and lie to them and cheat them and expect the relationship not to go south. I'm going to belittle my spouse and constantly dog them and I'm going to think somehow they're going to be happy. Or the joy in our marriage is going to come out of that. See, what we're doing in those moments where we don't obey the Word of God, we're saying that we can disobey the commands and the way God hardwired the universe and there's no consequences. Right? So, I, so while I get um, in some way the, the futility of Stoics who are just trying to figure out how to live moral lives and live virtuous lives and it just being futile and burdensome and troublesome and never figuring it out, you've got to say that our culture is foolish. Because we act like there ain't no rules to this thing at all. There ain't no laws that govern. Yeah, but jump off the building and there's gravity. I don't believe in gravity. Gravity doesn't make me feel, you know, like I'm me. Doesn't change gravity. Gravity doesn't care. 
There is a logic to the way in which it was created. Look in verse 5. The light, this light. So Jesus is the Word of God. He is the life of God. He is the light of God. All of these I'm going to give further treatment later in the book of John, so I don't want to get into them too much. But the light shines in darkness. That is not a moral relativistic PC answer. It is there is light and there is darkness. There is right and there is wrong. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not what your Bible say. Comprehend, overcome, comprehend. Which is it? What's great about this word, again, I think John is being intentionally ambiguous. I think he's being vague on purpose. The word can either mean overcome or understand, comprehend. If you believe it means comprehend, it makes sense in light of the immediate contextual understanding. That is, uh, there came a man sent from God who was John. He came as a witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, but the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. Right? So if you believe that that verse 5 should be translated understand, comprehend, that fits the immediate context of this thing. But that word, comprehend, understand, overcome, is only in its exact form used one other place in the Gospel of John. It's chapter 12. Which in that context, it clearly means overcome. Okay? So which is it? It's both. Listen, darkness doesn't understand and it doesn't overcome. John wants to say both. John wants to say both. He is the life of the light of chapter 1. He is the energy and power and intelligence that animate us, and people don't get it. They don't. And listen, we do the same exact thing in English. Um, have you ever used the word master? Probably not often, All right, but let's just throw it out there. If someone masters something, it means you know they've figured it out. But if someone dunks on you and says, I am your master, that means something different, right? So there's a way to overcome someone or to master someone, and there's a way to master like biology. And so our English words have that same range. And sometimes we, we could be vague in order to say both, and I think John is doing that. John has a brilliant planned ambiguity to say both. You who are hostile to the gospel truth will not overcome Jesus. Say that, church. Those who are indifferently seeking to say they have all Jesus figured out, you're not going to understand Him either. That this light has shone in darkness. And darkness just doesn't get Him. And, and we can give our culture a hard time but it's not like their culture was killing it either. They wrestled with who Jesus was. And Jesus wrestled back. It says that the light has come in the world. Now what's interesting about this, we're going to transition this just a moment, is that mirrors have no light in themselves. That if you put a mirror in a dark room, it does nothing. 
It, it simply absorbs the darkness around it. But you can actually go into rooms full of mirrors, shine a light into that, and it will reflect and explode that light into different directions. Humans in ourselves do not have light. The light of God shines on us and we are like the mirror. We are like the mountains that the sunrise hits and the glory of the sun illumines the mountains. We merely reflect the light of God pointed at our direction. Where much of the other gospel writers give us plain history, John gives us the mystery of God the light shining in darkness. He colors in the unshaded areas. John is coloring in the dull areas of our lives with the light of who Jesus is. Jesus is the light that enlightens or illuminates the soul darkened by sin. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this light. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. Not because I see it, the sun, but because by it I see everything else. There's days it may be cloudy in your life and you don't see the sun, but you remember that because Jesus has lighted the world, you may see everything else because of Him. Now, for me, I come into this person, I could preach a thousand sermons on this. Obviously, we've swam in the deep end of the swimming pool. This God, listen to what happens at the rest. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. Oh, sorry, look back in verse 6. You end with verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Darkness not overcome it, right? What in the world is going on with verse 6? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. What's John got to do with it? Right? Like, think about this. If you took 6 through 8 and you just skipped it. Look, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. Flows, doesn't it? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So what in the world is God doing with verses 6 through 8? Like, it feels like you introduced the, the, this, the third most important person in the room, right? There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light that came to bear witness about the light. Now, the first confusing thing about 6 through 8 is that John, the beloved, is not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist, who Southern Baptists are not named after. Further confusion. He's talking about John the Baptist. Why weave in the story of God being light with people who witness to that light? I think that that's because it was God's intention from shining in the first place. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who did what? Believed. He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, not part grace and truth, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Is it surprising that God becomes man, and the very thing we're about to find him doing is making disciples and lighting men's hearts on fire? Has that ever struck you? God could have come as a man and done anything, and he comes on the earth and begins making disciples and lighting their hearts on fire. Okay, like, we got this 6 through 8 about John weaved in there. You with me on that? Okay, then we go into 19 through 28, which is a fuller treatment and explanation of the testimony of John the Baptist. You see that? So what's going on there? Why is that what comes next? Then go next. Uh, 29 um, through 34. This interaction with John answering questions and being, being put on trial for Jesus sort of thing. Then you go into 35 um, through 42, which is Jesus calling the first disciples. By the way, for your house church, when he calls them from the boats and their fathers, that's obviously not the first time that Jesus had interacted with the disciples. We see a pre-discipleship interactions happening in John chapter 1. But then you get into 43 through 51, and Jesus is calling Philip and Nathaniel. So light, God, breaks forth on the earth. He's making disciples, and he's lighting men's hearts on fire, such that you got John witnessing to people. John's pushing his disciples in the direction of Jesus. Think about how many church leaders don't do that. Okay? you got brother, family member, pushing family member to Jesus. Guess how many family members don't do that? you got friend pushing friend to Jesus, right? That's what happens next. You get this nosebleed theology of chapter 1, very next thing you got witnessing for Jesus. That's always what happens. People who have experienced the light telling other people about Jesus who is the light. John's, Andrew's, Nathaniel's. I wish we had ten disciple makers in this church, ten house church leaders, who would go, like John, to hard places and cry the gospel over their city. Who would go to their neighborhood Go to Forest Lakes. Go to Ignacio. Go to Durango. Go to their area. Go to their workplace. Go to the place where their kids play sports and cry the gospel over that place like John. Because see, here's the deal. All the people who really get the light do that. There is no such thing as someone who experienced as big and a beautiful a person as Jesus as we see at the beginning of John 1, who do not turn and have to share it like Cliff does music on his phone. There's just no way. Listen, look at, let me just make some statements. I'm going to run through this. Look at the kind of people that, that are being formed out of an experience with this light. 29 and 35, give me people who shepherd other people to the Lamb of God. 
That's what John's doing. He's shepherding other people to the Lamb of God. Verse 29. Give me people who introduce sinners to the one who takes away the sins of the worldly. Isn't that what he does? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Give me some people like that who take sinners to the one who takes away sin. Verse 31, give me people who don't know everything. John didn't know everything about Jesus. Do you realize that? Read it. 31, but with faithfulness and purpose, he preached until Jesus was revealed. Verse 32 and 33, give me people who will witness in the power and affirmation of the holy dove, who don't go out on their own strength, but look for the power and affirmation of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, give me holy preachers, and I'm going to insert this one, who can't be tempted by money to preach anything other than Jesus, the divine Son of God. Because I'm so fed up of money running the church and making every single decision and that somehow we can get into this book and preach something other than Jesus, the divine Son of God. I don't get it. I simply don't get it. Verse 37, give me house church leaders who will usher their disciples to Jesus instead of building a personality cult around themselves. People who gather people together to give them over to Jesus. You want to know what we want for our house church leaders? That. We get leaders like John the Baptist who gives and pushes his disciples in the direction of Jesus. How incredible is that? You get family member who pushes family member, friend who pushes friend. Church, we got to reclaim the power of inviting people to Jesus. There is power in inviting people into this story that is bigger than them that they were created for. You realize that through all the doubts and people hurling criticisms and different stuff at them, they kept inviting people to Jesus. They kept sharing Jesus. Somehow, whatever happens in the first 18 verses was never intended to be huddled around and kept to ourselves. Because the rest of the chapter is people telling other people about Jesus and introducing people to Jesus. I love, um, and, and maybe just to give a, a small treatment, this is where I'll end. Verse 21 through 23. Um, if you look over there. Oh, I got that good music playing. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites, those are like professionals, from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, then what then? Are you Elijah? He said, now this is curious for some of us that know this Old Testament prophecy. We'd expect him to say, yes. I am not. Are you the prophet? Don't know what you mean by that, but yeah. He answered, no. So they asked him, who are you? 
We need to give an account or an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is so interesting to me. Because they are basically coming. Are you the prophet in Isaiah? Are you Elijah in Isaiah? You know, like, he goes and actually quotes the scripture and affirms that he is the fulfillment of that scripture, while at the same time not affirming all of their wild imaginations about what that looks like. Are you Elijah reincarnated? That's Hinduism. That's not our team. Different team. Not Elijah. I'm John. Right? It's like, are you the prophet? He says, I don't maybe know what all you mean by that, but here's what I am. I am this scripture preparing the way of the Lord, making straight his path. What I love about John here and about what's going to happen is John, like we'll see in Jesus in chapter 2, is triggering memory and fulfillment of Scripture. That what he does makes people think back on the Scripture. He triggers them to think about what God had set up in His Word. Um, I think that's incredibly fascinating. Here's the last point and the challenge I want to leave you with this morning. Um, I believe that uh, it's normal for us to be triggered by names. So if you um, have ever had children, you've come to this conversation with your spouse. You are pregnant and you're having this discussion. I would like to name the kid this. And your spouse kind of throws up in their mouth. And they'll be like, I went to fourth grade with someone named that. I would never name my child that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. You know what I'm saying? You have had the discussion. You've said, we can literally name the child anything. But they will never, as long as I'm alive, be named that name. And what that name did is it triggered. Um, the Proverbs talks about this all the time, that you can do evil in such a way that your name becomes like a stink. That when people say your name, they just go, oh my God. You know, like, oh, oh, oh. Or you could become the person who's wise and righteous, and when people say their name, it's like, my day is better simply because you said their name. Right? I love that person. Good feelings. Their name triggers things inside of you, right? Um, that's how names kind of work for us. Now, when we come to this idea is that John's triggering Scripture and that Jesus triggers the Word of God and the name of God of all the Old Testament, they're bringing up the person of God and putting it at the forefront. Um, the Jews have a very interesting um, interaction with this. They would not use Yahweh. And I know we use it all the time. Yahweh, Vavheh, um, the Tetragrammaton is what that's called in theology. It's God's unpronounceable name. And they wouldn't use it. Um, matter of fact, there's traditions that say that when in the Old Testament they would copy in the Scriptures, which was someone's life duty to copy one book, they would put on new clothes that no one had ever wore. They would bathe themselves seven times, use a pen no one's ever used, write God's name, burn the pen, burn the clothes, and bathe themselves seven times just to write it one time. That's how sacred God's name was to them. When they would talk about God, they wouldn't say God that we use, which is an English word. They would say Hashem. 
They say Hashem. And it's actually even in the, the Scriptures. Sometimes God, his, it just says the name. Hashem means the name. And they thought God's name, and they understood this from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not use the Lord your God's name in vain. To be careful about this, they would say, they're just not throwing God's name around on everything. So they would, he was the Hashem. He was the name. He was the name. And instead of saying Yahweh, or maybe even some of his other names like Adonai, or Jehovah Jireh, or whatever you want to say, they would say Hashem. Now, this is much bigger than the fact that God's last name is not Dam, okay? Sometimes in our culture, God's name is a cuss word, is the height of keeping that commandment. It's much bigger than that. It's the idea that as God's people, you have his name on you, that you represent God's character and his person. You hear what I'm saying? And that you don't walk around throwing God's name on stuff that God's got nothing to do with. You be careful with Hashem. And so this is how they understood this. That God had a name. Have you ever heard this before? That's above every name. A name above all names. He is Hashem. He is holy. His name was all that He is to us. And to put it in context of John 1, His name is all that He is to us in Christ Jesus. A name at the pronouncement of which every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the Word above all words. He's the name above all names. That His name is His character. It's His person. He's triune. He's holy. He's light. He's the life by which all creation is animated. He's the intelligence and the logic behind all things. People, His name is beautiful. And it'll scare you to death. I pray today that um, we're about to sing and we're going to sing about His name. And when we do that, I want John chapter 1 not to fall to the wayside in your heart and emotion in your mind, but I want John chapter 1 to fill your heart with the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word is light. It is the light that darkness never overcomes. I want that to fill your heart as we sing. So let me pray for you, um, and then we're going to do that. If um, today you would say that you don't know the light of Jesus, there's going to be elders at the back and front to pray with you. Today would be the day that you would say that I pass from unbelief to belief. That you see the logic of the universe and you realize it's not just a principle, it's a person. Dear Heavenly Father, we come wanting to tune into the rhythm by which stars were orchestrated into their place. God, we want to come um, in the name of the divine Son of God, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who gives us access into your throne room. We come into the name above all names, wanting to lift you up. And so God, as we sing, and we adore, and we exalt, and we enjoy, God, may your great name be glorified. And God, may our good just spill out of it. And may we take that good all over our community. Father, we ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Would you